Good morning. I hope that this last week you got your fair share of weather-related adventures. Uh, my, my daughter spent Wednesday night and early Thursday morning nine and a half hours on Interstate 5 inching her way through the city of Portland. Uh, she got in at 2.30 in the morning. By the time she got in, her, I was familiar. I had looked through every camera on Interstate 5 the whole uh, length of, of, the, of the trip. It, it was uh, really great to have her text us when she finally arrived safely at home. This morning, in the early hours, Ben Rico arrived at the office. I asked him, how was your trip in? How was your drive in? And he was quite disappointed. Uh, he was quite disappointed. He said, I tried to slip and slide all the way here, and I could not break loose. And I thought, well, I've spent all week trying not to slip and not to slide. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad that you're here this morning, and uh, I look forward to sharing with you from First John chapter 3. We're in this powerful little book, this uh, dynamite uh, burst, five brief chapters written by the Apostle John to a church. And that church was going through some troubles, some turmoil, and there was a split, and the split was around the person of Jesus, who he is and how he shows up in our life. And what does that look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? So turn with me, if you will, to First John chapter 3. We're going to look at 10 through 18, First John 3. It has been said that opposites attract for evidence. If a positive charge and a negative charge interact, their forces act in the same direction. They act from the positive to the negative charge. So opposite charges attract the other. The same with magnets. North and south attract. Two norths repel. Two souths repel. So that seems to make sense. I mean, that seems to be science, doesn't it? As a part of life, so that opposites attract now. In relationships, we say, or so we think. So an introvert is attracted to an extrovert, or an optimist to a pessimist, or to an impulsive person to a risk-averse person. Well, that's not necessarily the way it works in Real life. In 2013, the dating site eHarmony audited its users and found that though opposites sometimes made for an initial spark, it was the similarities that made for the most successful long-term pairings. Even if couples come from different cultural or socioeconomic backgrounds, quote, they tend to thrive when they share similar bedrock values and beliefs. People are Drawn People endure when they share those core values with one another. Do opposites attract? Not according to John in the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is, is sometimes uh, difficult to really read because it places it so shocking. It uses such vivid imagery and extremes... John uses language to wake us up. 
John uses words that if we stop and we think about those words, we find them a little unsettling, and we see that in the way he uses terms and names that are absolutely opposite. So we have God, we have the devil, we have light, we have darkness, we have either life or we have death. We have righteousness. We have evil. We have either love or hate. We have either Cain or Abel. That's what we find this morning in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. We see what God has to say about love and hate. And so first we ask the question, what do we know about the way God would have us love? First, loving others distinguishes us as children of our heavenly Father. So that when you and I love like we are loved, that surfaces our identity, our core, who we are. And so then what John does throughout the book of 1 John is he shows us these values and these beliefs that draw us together, that help us to experience an enduring relationship with other followers of Jesus Christ. And so here we have these two opposites, two kinds of children in verse 10. What are the two kinds of children? By this... The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Again, it's written to the church, to people like us who share a faith in the crucified, risen Jesus of the Bible. And how are we to interact and relate with one another? And here you have two kinds of children. So who's your father? It's either or. It's either you are a child of our heavenly Father, and we are through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for us, who's raised to life, or the other option, and this is the literary device that he uses, is either you are of your Father, God, or of the devil. Those are the two options. He says, by this, it's obvious who your Father is. And the characteristics of is God our heavenly Father are two, and they go hand in hand. They share the same heartbeat, the same pulse. So the first characteristic of a child of our heavenly Father is the one who practices righteousness. We try to break down what righteousness is as we look through the book of 1 John. When you and I confess our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous by God so that God looks at us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's not a righteousness that we deserved or earned. It is instead a righteousness that is placed to our accounts. So this is who we are. This is who we are. Our identity is because of Jesus, we're righteous. But then throughout our life, as we know Jesus Christ, We have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God as we say yes in obedience of faith to who God is and what He says. Then we begin to practice righteousness. So His righteousness is going to include everything that 
there is and exists about sexuality and morality and marriage and that which is approved of by God and embraced and endorsed by God so that we would practice his righteousness. And then the second piece is that we would love in a sacrificial way as we are loved by God. And they go together in this way. Love is not some mushy, codependent, I'm going to do what you want, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear so that you won't reject me or you'll like me. That's not love. Love, the one who loves like our Father loves, is also the one who practices righteousness. So this is a a robust love. This is a love that speaks God's truth to other people in appropriate circumstances in appropriate ways. So we have here this characteristic of a person who loves is also a person who embraces righteousness. So that nowhere does the Bible teach us to practice or to preach heresy. Not at all. That would be to the hurt and detriment of another. Nowhere does the Bible teach us to tell others and affirm others in their unrighteous actions. All of us fall short of God's righteousness. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can come to know the Father. We're restored in a right relationship with Him. And now, in our life, we embrace and endorse His vision for for the world, for our values. His values. That we would practice righteousness and that we would love as we are loved. John says, the children of the devil and the children of the Father the children of God, are obvious. He tells us what this looks like. And what it looks like is the heart of the gospel message. So we see in verse 10 what it looks like. We have children of God and we have the children of the devil, the children of God practice righteousness, and the children of God love as they are loved by God. Verse 11, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. So this is God's message from the get-go, from the very start, that when we're loved by God, now you have this transactional action that goes in relationships with others where now we love as we are loved. And the loving others in this context is the person who are part of the church, the other believers, the sisters and brothers in Christ who are united through faith in Jesus Christ, which marks us individually and it marks us corporately as a community, as a church. It's the message of Jesus. Jesus says, John fifteen seventeen, this I command you that you love one another. So the Apostle John writes this to the church so that the people who know the church, who see the church, can see that which is real and true and of God and that which is a fraud, that which looks great on the outside, but inwardly it's not consistent with reality. So now John tells us this is how we can know. And he uses that phrase again and again and again and again. And that knowing for the believer is a confident 
assurance that recognizes the work and the power of the Spirit of God in the heart of the willing. So there's this internal reinforcement. At times it can be an internal rest or a confidence in the face of the storm. This is how you know. So that from the beginning, God has been consistent in that God loves, and as he has loved, so we can love. And as we love, now we're a part of a family. And we are a part of the family through the work of Jesus. We are a part of a family then, you could say, through the blood of Jesus. We're family. So now John tells us this is what God calls us to do, is that we are to love our family. And now he's going to tell us and show us with a vivid illustration that's going to offend some people. This is what hate looks like. This is how you love your family. And this is what it looks like to not love your family, to be unloving. And he says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. How does that work? How does that go together? Well, go with me to the beginning. Go with me back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, the world has changed. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. God created us without sin, and he created us in a place of provision and plenty. And then we made some decisions to defy God. God spoke and God said, this is the life. This is righteous. This is real. This is what he expects of us. And we defied him and that broke everything. Everything. It broke our relationship with God. We defied him. We heard what he said. We blew it off. We turned away. We wanted to be as God and we did what we wanted. And it broke our relationship with God. And if you think that's all it broke, we need to reread Genesis 2 and 3 because it broke the marriage. We went from, uh, I've never known my spouse to sin, and they've never known me to sin, to a now. You have two sinners who are married one to another, and they're living together, doing life together, under the same roof. So now you have a marriage that's challenged by this breakage, and you have this perfect marriage that is now broken, and that's not all. It snowballs. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord promises Adam and Eve. He promises children. He promises a future. And eventually, the far reach of that future would bring a son, the son, God's son, son of Adam, become like us to undo the brokenness that we brought into this world. But for now, in Genesis chapter 4, we now have God's promise and fulfillment in a family for Adam and Eve. 
And Eve gives us this birth announcement in Genesis chapter 4. And at first we think these are happy thoughts. I mean, she's pregnant. Life goes on. We have a baby. Then we're going to have another. So we read in chapter 4, verse 1, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, and we hear her words quoted here, and there is a bit of ownership in what Eve says about her pregnancy. And that ownership is in these very next words, I I have gotten. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So she's pregnant. She's happy. Verse 2, and again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So the babies, the boys, they grew up. They became men. They got jobs. They flourished in their work One was a keeper of sheep and baby lambs, and the other made things grow and harvested food for others. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. All right, this is a good step by Cain, you think. I mean, if you and I are looking at Cain and we're watching him. So he's really good at growing things. So Cain brings to the Lord a gift. It's an offering. And he gives it to the Lord. And we go, attaboy, Cain. Nicely done. You're generous. Ah, there's more to the story. There's more to the story because Abel, verse 4, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering... He had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. That's not fair. What did the Lord know that we didn't? The Lord would have to tell us. The Lord knew Cain's heart. The Lord knew why Cain gave what he gave. And the Lord knew why Abel gave what he gave. So the Lord knew the heart. And the Lord was delighted with Abel's sacrifice. He was not delighted with Cain's offering. Brothers, rift, breakage. My brother got what I didn't. He got God's delight. And now it's the delight that God gives to Abel's gift because... God saw Abel's heart. It's that delight that divides the brothers. It's sin. So now you have Cain, envious, jealous. He got from God the delight that he wanted because God knew Cain's heart. He knew the heart of Abel. And so God speaks to Cain. God doesn't give up on Cain. He... he, pursues him much as he pursued Adam and Eve when they sinned and they tried to hide from God and they tried to pretend, no, we didn't do anything, we're innocent. And God comes after them and God speaks to them. Well, now God comes after Cain. And he speaks to Cain and he gives Cain an opportunity for a mid-course correction. He speaks to Cain. 
He says, Cain, watch out. This road you're going down, the path, these choices that you're making are going to be to your hurt and your brother's hurt. He gives him an opportunity to make a better decision, to listen to the word of the Lord and to make a mid-course correction. And we know how it turns out. The next two verses. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? There's a future for you, Cain. There's a future for you if you want to return to me, if you want to repent, if you want to come back with a pure heart. If you do not do well, here's the warning. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So sin is just right around that corner in the darkness. And it's waiting to ambush, to appeal to that within us that is now broken because of our sin and flesh. Verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. This is harsh language. And now he's going to apply this to real life. Back in First John. Now we have Abel delighted God. We have Cain defied God. Now we know what was lurking in Cain's heart. God knew it all along. But now what Cain experienced inside makes its way outside into behavior, into life. And that behavior is now evident for the whole world to see. And it's to the hurt of his own brother. And it's to his own hurt. That's why sin is such a big deal to God. Yes, God is holy. Yes, our sin violates his person and his character. But our sin disfigures and destroys his creation. Us. Our relationships. Others. So now we have a choice, and Cain made his choice, and so now the Apostle John is saying, learn on Cain's dime. From the actions and the choices that he made, which were characteristic of hatred, and now God redefines murder in a way that's troubling. And that's what we find in these next verses in 1 John Chapter 3, verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So what is it that divides in verse 13? What divides is verse 12. And that is the child of God delights God in his love, his adoration, and in his obedience. So that those who, and here's the follow, those who defy God are uncomfortable in the presence of the truth of God, the righteousness of God, and the Word of God. So that means that the person who proclaims Christ and who lives and honors Christ, that means we're going to have relationships with people who don't agree with us and they may not even like us. So don't be surprised. We're not exempt. 
if when we say yes to Jesus and our workplace, our venues, the opportunities that we have to say yes to him, we want to say yes to him, we want to please him, we want to delight our hearts in him. So the lesson for those who are righteous and those who love is that we can believe. What Jesus says about who we are and who he is and we can embrace him and his word and his morality and not be surprised by the reaction of others who have different values than does the Jesus Christ of the Bible. So in that sense... Opposites don't attract. What does attract is the cohesiveness of people who have said yes by faith to Jesus Christ. And so now we're healed in our heart. We're forgiven of sin. Now we have new power, spirit of God, word of God, new opportunity for us to say yes to the person of God, to his word and to his ways so that you and I We don't need to reform God's Word. We need to reform our character. We need to yield to what God has to say about who He is. We don't need to make excuses for what He says and His vision and His ideas in creating us in the first place. So that we are to first here, we have love God, and what does that love look like? And now John tells us exactly what it looks like in verses 14 through 18, and it looks like this. Loving God reflects the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. So that there is a cost to this kind of love. And it is a cost that Jesus first paid and then that you and I who have received the benefits and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, now you and I get to love in a sacrificial way other people uh, loving others is not it's not our native language do you know some people are very lovable i find you know jesus very very lovable <laughs> and there are other people that i think man they're a lot more lovable than than i am but there is this natural native voice inside of us that you know we experience envy and I once read a definition of envy that it's the consuming desire for everybody else to be as unsuccessful as I am. You know, I, I want, why, they, why do they get that? I didn't want them to succeed. And now, so now there's that resentment that creeps in. And now we have this impulse to retaliate. I once heard a story about a guy who was bitten by a rabid dog, went to the doctor, tested positive for rabies. Doctor said, you have rabies? The guy says, thank you, gets up, grabs his coat, and he's about to leave. And the doctor says, you know, we have a cure for rabies. And the guy says, I know, but there's some people I want to bite first. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> it's like, okay, that, that's just kind of percolating inside of us there, you know. <laughs> but instead, now we get to love in a way that gives a piece of us. That, that we deny ourselves and that we, 
we love this person who in this moment, and all of us have been at one time or another, at one point or another, we're not having the best of days, and we're not entirely lovable, and so with everybody else that we know. And so now we have this transaction of the heart, this transformation of the heart through the power of the Spirit of God, so that now we can love people who may not necessarily be that lovable, and that's how we know we are a child of God. Remember the opposites? We got love. We got hate. We got life. We have death. How do we know that we have life? Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's shocking. I mean, we immediately think, I, you know, I haven't taken the life of anybody. But here's what we have. We have a tension between takers and givers. We have a tension between Cain, who took a life. And Jesus, who gives us life. So, take, give. Life, death. And how do we know that we have life? We know that we have life by the way that God works in us to love others. And how does that love work? Very next verse. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brother. Jesus gave his life. If we know Jesus, we share his life. He died our death, his life for our life, so we give our life to him. So that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have salvation and forgiveness and his righteousness is encountered to us. He becomes our, our inspiration. He becomes our example. He becomes the source of our strength to love as we are loved. And this is in the context of people that we know well. To people that we are a part of in the body of Christ. So the Lord gives for the true good of others so that we're not to seek our own. We're not to elevate ourselves, but to seek God's true good for others. And then he tells us exactly how in verse 17. And verse 17 has several components to it that are very, very practical in what it looks like to love in this way. Whoever... Has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? So how do we love sacrificially? Well, first, very first one, very first word, do the math, you could say. So the very first movement in verse 17, do we have the necessary commodities for life? If we do, God is the source of those commodities, those resources that we have. 
And one of the reasons that God gives us what He has is for us. It's not selfish, but not just for us. One of the reasons God has entrusted what He has to us is for us to use it for Him. So we would rightfully use our resources for Him with our families, with our children as appropriate, with our friends, with others who are in the body, so that do we have enough? God has given us commodities, resources. And then look what he says next. I like the NASB. It says, behold, which means open your eyes. It's a little tiny word, but it means periscope up, look around. So we read in verse 17, whoever has the world's good and sees, do we see? Do we see those who are in need? And then we have the warning and the negative, if we see and close our heart. Well, the positive would be to see and open our heart. And if we see and open our heart, that's evidence yet again of God's love that does abide in us. And so as a church, we want to practice generosity. But this is really, really important that we practice generosity that is informed generosity. It is informed by discernment and wisdom. We want to practice generosity with accountability. So here's what that looks like in the local body. We have a benevolent fund and it is managed by deacons and those deacons in our, they're the ones that are informed in wisdom as to the viability of a person's need. And so they may very well, probably will, do a home visit. They'll ask questions about practices and the way that this person spends things. Sometimes those uh, needs are very evident and obvious, but it is the deacons who make that recommendation. And it goes through an accountability structure where they're informed and where they inform the rest who need to know. And then they may... Uh, ask our uh, office staff, our payroll, to, to give a gift directly to the vendor for accountability purposes. And here's the way it looks like overseas in foreign venues. So you have Caleb and Maria sitting over here, and they're at Black Forest Academy in Germany, and they're going to return, and they have a board that holds them accountable to discharge their duties. And so you have trust that this money that you're giving goes through an accountability structure, and they're going to use it in a way that's right and good. So we want to practice generosity, but not in impulsive, indiscriminate types of generosity. Informed by wisdom and accountable for those who have a front row seat as to where this gift is going so that the gift ultimately gets where it's supposed to go. So first, do the math. And secondly, open our eyes. And third, open our heart to the opportunity that God presents to us to practice generosity for the true good of others because sometimes helping financially actually hurts more than it helps. In fact, there's an interesting book called When Helping Hurts that's worth the read. 
so that when we give, we truly help the true good of another person. And the final question in verse 17 is, if we close our heart, that's not good news. Because how does the love of God abide in us? So the positive is there are signs of life, and one sign of life is our generosity into the lives of others. So how do we know that God loves us? Verse 18, how do we know that God loves us? Little children, let us love with word. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So there are some people who would say, don't say anything, just do it. Well, how do you know that God loves you? He told you. He says, I love you. So God speaks to humanity, and he says God loves the world. He tells us, but it doesn't remain just a word. It instead is message to us through the Son of God, who is called Word. One word. God's disclosure of who He is to us in and through His Son. And it's that verbal disclosure that becomes a behavioral action of love that is sacrificial in which the one who did not deserve to die died our death and the one who was without sin became our sin. That is an actionable demonstration of God's love for us. And so now as we receive his love for us, we get to do the, the tough stuff, the messy stuff. We, we get to love in the same way that he loves us. So as you and I are overwhelmed by his love t- for us, as we experience the tangible, practical demonstration of God's mercy and grace in our life, Now you and I get to practice what we have received so that forgiven people forgive people. Those who have received mercy learn to give mercy. Those who have received grace and God's goodness that we don't deserve, now we get to be people who are known for the grace of God that we've experienced in our life. Would you bow with me, please? I hope you know who this Jesus is. I hope you have confessed this Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you have shared with him and told him that you believe in him, that he loves, that he died, that he is raised, and that through him you experience God's full and complete forgiveness of sin. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the ways you have surprised us with your acceptance and your kindness so many times. Help us to love as we are loved by you. In Jesus' name.